Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an open letter published simultaneously today in the New Republic and the Bulwark by Todd Gitlin, Jeffrey Isaac, and William Crystal. An open letter in defense of democracy, the future of democracy in America is in danger. Joining us is Todd Gitlin, a sociologist, political writer, novelist, cultural commentator, and professor of journalism and communications at Columbia University. He is a former president of Students for a Democratic Society and helped organize the first national demonstration against the Vietnam War, as well as the first civil disobedience directed against American corporate support for the apartheid regime in South Africa. His books include Letter to a Young Letters to a Young Activist and the Forthcoming The Opposition, and he has just co-authored this open letter signed by a diverse group of progressives and conservatives that range from Noam Chomsky to Max Boot, Katha Pollitt to Mona Charon. We'll discuss how the US is already at the second stage of what historian Robert Paxton referred to as the five stages of fascism as the Republican Party, under the cult-like spell of Donald Trump, is furiously rigging the electoral playing field to make America a permanent one-party state. In their urgent appeal to save American democracy, the signatories conclude with, quote, We urge all responsible citizens who care about democracy, public officials, journalists, educators, activists, ordinary citizens, to make the defense of democracy an urgent priority now. Now is the time for leaders in all walks of life, for citizens of all political backgrounds and persuasions, to come to the aid of the Republic. Then we'll examine the latest objections by Senator Manchin to investing in the middle class and working Americans by making the rich pay their fair share of taxes. Speaking at an event on Tuesday staged by the Economic Club of Washington, Manchin boasted to the billionaire and leading tax cheat, the Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein, that he had single-handedly vetoed a key Democratic proposal to increase tax revenues by making banks increase their reporting on financial activities to the IRS, denying the government a powerful weapon against tax evasion that would raise hundreds of billions. Joining us are Morris Pearl, former managing director of BlackRock and currently the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high net worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable and inclusive nation, and Erica Payne, the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive. We will discuss the 71% majority opinion of Americans that the economy is rigged in favor of the rich and the new book they co-authored, Just Out, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. And before we go to our first guest, now that I have moved fully to online broadcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where we will be depending upon you, our growing global and national community of listeners, to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so that those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now, Todd Gitlin, an American sociologist, political writer, novelist, cultural commentator, and professor of journalism and communications at Columbia University. He's the former president of Students for a Democratic Society and helped organize the first national demonstration against the Vietnam War, as well as the first civil disobedience directed against American corporate support for the apartheid regime in South Africa. His books include The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election, Undying, a novel, and Letters to a Young Activist. And his forthcoming book is The Opposition. And he has just co-authored an open letter published in The New Republic and The Bulwark, an open letter in defense of democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Todd Gitlin. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the open letter that's being published simultaneously in The New Republic and The Bulwark is authored by you, as well as Jeffrey Isaacs, the James H. Ruddy Professor of Political Science at Indiana University in Bloomington, and William Crystal, editor-at-large of The Bulwark. And it has progressives and conservatives on it, as with a wide range, from Max Boot to Noam Chomsky, Jelani Cobb to Charles Sykes and Mona Sharon, etc. So let me ask you this, Todd. What kind of impact are you expecting here? Because this is a kind of creed occur from intellectuals. And what is happening to the country is this anti-intellectual movement led by Donald Trump, which is a threat to our democracy. And, and they're laying the table or setting the table now for one-party rule in this country through voter suppression. So give us a sense of your strategy. Well, we hope to encourage those who recognize that we're in a state of emergency Number one. Number two, that the state of emergency is the product of a um, off the rails Republican Party um, that wants to rule uh, for as long as it can as a minority over overruling a a majority. What kind of effect we expect to have? I mean, one never knows. One hopes to flash a light and see if somebody carries it further. I mean, one thing I, I think might at least interest a number of people who come across it, they'll, they'll probably be aware that this is uh, most likely the first time that an article has appeared simultaneously in the New Republic and the Bulwark. Um, it's probably, I, I would say, the first time that the signatories have gathered uh, to uh, subscribe to the identical statement. And uh, I think that very quirkiness, if you will, is perhaps an alert that we ought to be uh, crossing lines, crossing political lines, because right now, whatever issues we've disagreed on in the past and expect to disagree on in the future, we need a thriving democracy, which is under assault. So uh, here's hoping that uh, some of your listeners will also rise to the occasion. Well, in a broader sense, though, are you trying to get a political shift underway because of this highly polarized situation we have with a raised thin majority the Democrats have in the Senate and in the House? Is there a chance of the kind of coalition that you've built in this open letter becoming a broader political coalition? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, frankly, I'm not awfully optimistic in the short run. Um, we know there are two Republican members of Congress, Liz Cheney and um, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, who have uh, gotten off the Trump bandwagon and warned about what is happening to their party, 
or what has happened to their party. Uh, I don't yet see other elected Republican officials who are uh, taking the plunge in that direction, whether out of cowardice or connivance or duplicity or uh, choose your own motives. Uh, I can't be sure. I can't at all. Uh, I don't dare guess. But I, this, my interest in working on this project came out of my reading in recent months about the rise of fascism in Europe. We know that, uh, and I, I owe my, my uh, intense feeling about uh, this matter to a marvelous book by the historian Robert Papson called The Anatomy of Fascism. When we think about the rise of fascism, mostly the Italian and, and, uh, and German models, we, we think of the first stage, what he calls the first of five stages, uh, the first stage is the is the um, lurid one. It's the uh, the the rise of the charismatic leader. It's the uh, creation of the party. It's the creation of a propaganda apparatus. It's the creation of paramilitaries and the launching of violence in the streets. The second phase is the one I think we're at, which is the phase at which the conservative establishment. And here I don't mean necessarily politically conservative, but the, the conventional parties cave in. They decide to construct, to make their bargains with, uh, with the fascist leader because they have their opportunistic reasons for doing so. Uh, that's where we are. That's where the Republican Party is gone. So if, if we can contribute any smidgen of encouragement to uh, Republicans who don't want to lash themselves to the mast of uh, racism uh, and authoritarianism, um, if we can just ignite one little flame of interest in um, appreciating what's at stake, that's what we can do. That's what we're trying to do. Well, it seems that we do have a virtual secession underway in this country. If you look at the state of Texas and other red states, it's pretty clear that the people who support uh, Trump, and we're only talking about 30% of the country, as far as I know, in terms of the hardcore, they don't want to live with the rest of the country. They want to have minority power in perpetuity, and that's why they have this comprehensive and multi-layered voter suppression underway. And right. it seems that, you know, it's worse in a way than the Civil War. In the Civil War, they broke away from the Union. In this particular secession, they're breaking away from democracy itself. Yeah, well, uh, actually, that was also a Confederate <laughs> project uh, because they didn't believe in democracy, and they said so quite from the beginning. Uh, that is to say, they did not believe that black and white people had equal uh, rights uh, to uh, participate in self-government. I, I think that if you if you have your eyes wide open, or even if your eyes have your eyes half open, you appreciate that. Trump, from the very beginning, uh, even before he was a declared candidate, was going on about uh, the vote being rigged and was promoting the idea that the only conceivable way he could be stopped would be by some sort of uh, criminal conspiracy joined by uh, or, or colluded in by what he called the enemies of the people, the enemies of the American people, the media the fake news and so on. Now they've, you know, the Republican Party um, under 
I would call it cover of darkness, for many years has been involved in taking over state legislatures, not innocently with the, the support of the Koch brothers and their various uh, uh, financial enterprises. And the result has been that the, they have elected state legislatures uh, in a number of states who have been uh, happy to pass legislation that not only, uh, uh, not only uh, punishes those who would vote, not only inhibits those who would vote, but also provides some sort of quasi-legal mechanism, I, I don't think it's constitutional, but they disagree, to roll back a vote once it takes place. That is, to do what uh, John Eastman and his cronies put to Trump as a strategy for rescinding the results of the election. So now we have all these bills that have passed in quite a number of states, uh, and which are serving as models for other states. So, uh, you know, this is a long-term enterprise, which, um, for my for my own part, I attribute to their uh, the Republicans' growing recognition that they do not speak for a political majority. But let's let's recall they've only uh, that is to say they don't speak for a numerical majority. They've only won one popular vote uh, since 1996 nationally. And that was 2004 when Bush beat uh, beat John Kerry. So um, you know they mean it. This is their uh, their hail mary pass to um, to restrain democracy. And it's it's more it's more bald and bold faced than uh, we've seen from them before. But it it does this move does express the logic of their position, which is that there are a, a large number of people who don't deserve to be cohabitants in a democracy. They, they are either uh, they're illegals or they're dead voters or, or one reason or another, they're illegitimate. Right. The makers versus the takers, as Mitt Romney said in a private uh, conversation yeah. uh, to donors a while back in, when he was running. And again, I'm speaking with Todd Gitlin, American sociologist, political writer, novelist, cultural commentator, and professor of journalism and communications at Columbia University. He's the former president of Students for a Democratic Society and helped organize the first national demonstration against the Vietnam War, as well as the first civil disobedience directed against American corporate support for the apartheid regime in South Africa. His books include The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election, Undying, a novel, and Letters to a Young Activist. And his forthcoming book is The Opposition. And he has just co-authored an open letter published in The New Republic and The Bulwark simultaneously, An Open Letter in Defense of Democracy. So let me just read a little bit of the open letter. Open letter in defense of democracy. The future of democracy in the United States is in danger. We are right as academics and political activists who have long disagreed about many things. Some of us are Democrats and others Republicans. Some identify with the left, some with the right, and some with neither. We have disagreed in the past and we hope to be able to disagree productively for years to come because we believe in the pluralism that is at the heart of democracy. But right now we agree on a fundamental point. We need to join together to defend liberal democracy because liberal democracy itself is in serious danger. Liberal democracy depends on the free and fair elections, respect for the rights of others, the rule of law, the commitment to truth and tolerance in our public discourse. All of these are now in serious danger. So we've seen the coarsening of the discourse and 
and this extraordinary messenger on the right who is a, a wannabe billionaire who, you know, was talking about America first, but it's always been Trump first. And he's such a patent fraud. It is breathtaking to see how far he's got. And you would have thought that having been defeated, he would go away. But now he's back and, and stronger than ever. So given the obvious that the Republican Party itself, the entire party now is, has formed a kind of cult around Trump and that they're all in on voter suppression, is there a way to kind of tap into the American sense of fair play? I mean, in a sporting match, say in an NFL game, if in the Super Bowl there was a flagrantly wrong call by a referee that overturned the obvious victory of one side, the uh, the stadium would be up in arms. So that's what I don't understand. It's so obvious that the Republicans would rather cheat than compete. Do you think that message could resonate? Beats me. I mean, we have to try to make it resonate uh, because the stakes are so high. You know, I don't know of the people who have joined the Trump cult. Uh, I don't know how many of them are simply opportunistic, how many of them are true believers, uh, how many of them are budgeable, nudgeable. Um, A few nudged, a few thousand nudged in uh, swing states can make all the difference in the electoral college because of our peculiar uh, 18th century customs. The the Trump gang, and I refer to them as, you know, I believe largely cynical, uh, operation, you know, many of whom are intelligent enough to know that what they're saying is garbage, um, which is, by the way, also the opinion of Adam Schiff, whose new book I'm, I've been reading. He, that's his opinion about many of the, the most flamboyant of the Republicans. They're going for broke, and they're counting on a combination of general public cynicism, dismay about uh, uh, the prospects for an honest politics, the uh, ignorance of much of the public about what the rules of the game are. It's as if they, <laughs> the, the, the football game began as a football game, and now it's turned into another sort of game, and you've got you know, some considerable critical mass of the audience that sort of think something funny has happened on the field, but they, they don't dare. I mean, is this like some children's fairy tale or something? It's an emperor's clothes problem. They don't dare get off the bandwagon because who would they be without it? And I think their difficulty in producing a program, aside from cutting taxes, that's not a rule for governance. That's a rule for to uh, cut back governance. Uh, they don't stand for anything. Uh, they, that's why they melted down in the face of the Trump demagoguery. And they find themselves no further along today than before. So uh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to get my ranch on uh, their prospects for rescuing their party. I mean, I can't think of an example of a political party that's gone, uh, that's gone over the brink and then come back to something that one might call normalcy. I've been trying to think of one historically, and I can't. But so, you know, we may be at a moment that's comparable to the pre-Civil War Whig Party, which split over slavery, with some of them going with the Democratic Party, which was then the pro-slavery party, certainly in the South, but also to some degree elsewhere. Uh, And some of which went off to join the, the new Republican Party. 
uh, I, I don't prophesy that that's in the cards. I mean, the the, the anti-slavery Whigs, let's say, have not yet de- had gonads to declare themselves. But um, all we can do is 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 coax and can you know and try to convince open-minded people that they have a lot at stake, and if they are willing to forego the pretty words about democracy, they're going to have to ride roughshod over more than half the country, uh, and not to mention the Constitution to do it. I mean, they are faced, they've already accommodated themselves for the most part to a, a, a physical insurrection. They have already been involved in a conspiracy to reject the returns uh, from the 2020 election. We don't know where, where their limits are. We'll find out. Well, another analogy, and you, and you alluded to it with the Whigs, of course, when the Whigs collapsed in the 1850s, in part, the rump became the know-nothing party. And yeah. that's what we have now, right? The Republicans have become a know-nothing party. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because Lincoln, I've been reading uh, the, the first three published volumes of Sidney Blumenthal's biography of Lincoln, which is extraordinarily good. And uh, he shows how how clever Lincoln was in convincing some of the know-nothings who were anti-immigrant that, you know, he wouldn't really meddle with their anti-immigrant sentiment as long as they were willing to accept that slavery should be contained because it was evil. So, I mean, putting together a political party is not a pretty, it's not, you know, making a well a well-furnished table. But uh, we may yet see some uh, fragmentation in the party. But uh, again, I'm not counting on anything. I just, we just, I, there's a certain, you know, my, my own uh, political prophetic imagination runs out pretty quickly. Well, the conclusion to your letter is we urge the Democratic-controlled Congress to pass effective national legislation to protect the vote and our elections, and if necessary, to override the Senate filibuster rule. And we urge all responsible citizens who care about democracy, public officials, journalists, educators, activists, ordinary citizens, to make the defense of democracy an urgent priority now. Now is the time for leaders in all walks of life, for citizens of all political backgrounds and persuasions, to come to the aid of the Republic. So that's your sort of creed occur there, Todd, but in a broader sense... A lot of analysts for some time have talked about how we're in the in the new Gilded Age and that, in effect, the struggle, the broader struggle, is between democracy and plutocracy. Do the plutocrats want a one-party state run by the Republicans? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there were certainly plutocrats who were making noises some months in, ago, like the Business Roundtable. Uh, that they were concerned about uh, democracy flying apart and, in fact, concerned about inequality. Well, they haven't shown much for their uh, profession of American uh, egalitarian values. I don't think, frankly, most plutocrats uh, are awfully committed to one form of government rather than another as long as uh, they can retain their preeminent, their economic preeminence, their uh, exemption from equal treatment, from equal taxation. If we're counting on them to rush in and save the game, we better give up the game because they, they aren't going to save it. Their commitments 
or to the shareholder value, which is their golden calf. So no, I think that for all that they've made gestures in behalf of voting rights and so on, they still support political candidates in Texas and elsewhere, Georgia, who have acted uh, in defiance of voting rights. Uh, They haven't stepped up to form a a national commission of uh, right-minded plutocrats to hold on to the, the constitutional measures. They haven't declared that the filibuster is a travesty on democracy. I mean, we don't, they are not small D Democrats in general. So I'm not holding my breath for them. Well, it seems, though, that the game is rigged. I mean, first of all, we have a money-driven politics, and our legislatures have been turned into telemarketers. But the fact that that we have a situation now where the Republicans are all in for reactionary politics and to protecting the, the wealthy, uh, but then you've got just two Democrats have been peeled off by the establishment, Cinema and Mansion. And cinema is holding the line against repealing the Trump tax cuts, making billionaires pay more taxes. They've just had a 40% raise during the pandemic in their extraordinary wealth. And she refuses to allow the increased tax, uh, corporate taxes. So that's just one person who's holding the line. So all the establishment has to do is peel off a couple of Democrats and they stymie progressive legislation. So again... I get the feeling that there's about 30% that are irretrievable in terms of being in the Trump cult. But with the 60%, there's a lot to work with there, at least enough to work with there, surely. What do we do about these traitors like Cinema and um, Mansion? Well, you have to overwhelm them. I mean, in a state like West Virginia, where Trump won by 40 points, you're uh, probably not going to do a lot better than Joe Manchin. If the uh, candidate, the Democratic candidate for the Senate in North Carolina uh, had been able to keep his pecker in in his pants, uh, we would not have a 50-50 Senate. We would have a 51-49 Senate. That would be highly advantageous. The Senate, as we know, is rigged against democracy, but winning a few more Senate seats, and that is not inconceivable would put the mansions and cinemas in the marginal position they deserve to be. In the you know medium run, if there is a medium run, this could well materialize. But it, again, fighting against the deeply anti-democratic spirit of so much of the Constitution. Well, Todd Gitlin, I thank you for joining us, and I thank you for this wake-up call that you and your colleagues have done. And I applaud you for fighting to maintain American democracy. Uh, It's a pleasure, Ian, and I'm very happy that we're on this side together. And again, I've been speaking with Todd Gitlin, who's an American sociologist, political writer, novelist, cultural commentator, and professor of journalism and communications at Columbia University. He's the former president of Students for a Democratic Society and helped organize the first national demonstration against the Vietnam War, as well as the first civil disobedience directed against American corporate support for the apartheid regime in South Africa. His books include The Chosen Peoples, America, Israel, and the Ordeals of Divine Election, Undying, a novel, and Letters to a Young Activist. And his forthcoming book is The Opposition. And he just co-authored an open letter published in The New Republic and The Bulwark simultaneously, an open letter in defense of democracy. 
We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing the 71% majority opinion of Americans that the economy is rigged in favor of the rich and the new book by the founders of the Patriotic Millionaires, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Democrats are right apart Across the blue white ocean Reagan's president-elect Fascist got in motion Generals tell him what to do Stop your good time dancing Train their guns on me and you Fascist like advancing Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Morris Pearl and Erica Payne. Morris Pearl is the former managing director of BlackRock, and is currently the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high-net-worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable, and inclusive nation. And Erica Payne is the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive. They are the co-authors of a new book just out, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Morris Pearl and Erica Payne. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, thanks for joining us. And this is a moment where the fate of the Democratic agenda and perhaps Biden's presidency hang in the balance uh, to... Democratic senators uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema seem to be in many ways in the driving seats. And there is a now a plan to tax billionaires, a, ba- a billionaire surtax. And also just on Monday, Elon Musk, his fortune jumped $36.2 billion in one day on Monday. So you would think, uh, let me begin with Morris, you would think, Morris, that that alone would perhaps sway some of these senators about how out-of-whack incomes are or how bad income equality is in this country. It might. I mean, one of the problems with our tax system is that even though, as you said, he made this fortune of $36 billion earlier this week, he didn't have any taxable income. We in America don't tax wealth or fortunes. We tax something we call taxable income. And for people like you that get a paycheck with money deducted from that paycheck every week for taxes, it's pretty clear what its income is. But for somebody who's an investor like Elon Musk or like me to a much smaller extent, we don't have income. If you're already rich, you don't need income. So we basically decide if we want to pay taxes or not any particular month or quarter. And that's part of the problem with our system is that we don't tax the wealthiest among us as they make money, as we make money. And Erica, isn't that the racket that should be exposed here, that the very wealthy, particularly wealthy like Bezos and Elon Musk in terms of the values of their companies and the shares, they borrow against their shares and they live off debt, which is not taxable. Isn't that the racket? Well, I mean, (laughs) certainly that's part of the racket. Um, But I think the bigger racket is the influence that they have over the political system. That's what it all comes down to. Um, I mean, we toured West Virginia for three days a week ago to talk to people about tax policy. And this is a group of voters who voted for Donald Trump by about 30 points. 
And I would say to a person um, with maybe one or two notable exceptions out of hundreds of people we talk to, every single one of them knows that millionaires and billionaires are getting away with murder. The question is just if Democrats can come up with enough political will to address the problem. Um, I mean, somebody like Elon Musk, you know, who, I mean, his comments about this proposed tax are just the height of obnoxious. He says eventually they run out of other people's money and then they come for you. And let me just say, I mean, right now, as we stand today, working people in America pay a higher effective tax rate than Elon Musk. That is completely ridiculous totally unjust. And I think what's happened is we're running out of working people's money. So it's time to go get the billionaires to start doing their fair share or at least end the absolutely preposterous treatment, special treatment. They are a special class of treat. They are a special class of person in the tax code, and they basically have no obligation to the country whatsoever. So, Morris, let's deal with one of the spoilers here, uh, Senator Joe Manchin. On Monday, he went to uh, the Cafe Milano, which is a Georgetown sort of power place, where he said he was totally out of sync with the Democratic Party. He said that in front of a group of uh, big corporate leaders and donors. And then on Tuesday, he was hosted by the head of the Carlyle Group, a billionaire, David Rubenstein, at the Economics Club in Washington. Then he also announced at this economic club meeting that he had told Biden at breakfast on Monday that he won't support, he in fact vetoed this key democratic pro- proposal to increase tax revenues by requiring banks to report a much wider swath of financial activity to the IRS, and that would give the government a powerful new tool to combat tax evasion. So Manchin has thrown his lot in with the Republican tax cheats because they're against efforts to fund the IRS's ability to collect taxes. So that is so counterintuitive, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, I think we have to separate, at least in my mind, I keep separate the idea that some of our billionaires don't pay any taxes because the system does not tax, you know, huge fortunes. It only taxes taxable income, as I was saying. We also need to separate out from that the idea that there are, frankly, a bunch of criminals in our country who are stealing from the rest of the hardworking, honest, law-abiding taxpayers. I think most people agree, at least most working people agree, that we should be enforcing at least the existing tax laws and collecting taxes that are due from these criminals. Um, So I I think it's ridiculous, the idea that we want to weaken IRS enforcement. Um, So that's absurd. I think... Part of the problem is, as Erica was saying, is that our political leaders are so in sync with some of the wealthy people in our country because they spend so much time with the wealthy. You know, it's it's like Warren Buffett said, it's very hard to get someone to understand something if their livelihood depends on them not understanding it. And frankly, I think some of our political leaders understand very well what frustrates the very rich who frankly don't like paying taxes in some cases and they don't have enough time to spend understanding what frustrates most of the people in america who work for a living well and let me just jump in here too i mean ian the the grand irony of the fact that joe manchin is sitting next to david rubenstein while he is lamenting 
you know, an idea that would help mitigate tax avoidance. I mean, he is standing next to the poster child for the egregious and unfair treatment that the rich get in the tax code. David Rubenstein is probably one of the single most pivotal influencers on American tax policy and is one of the people standing in the way of a fair tax system. There's a loophole called the carried interest loophole, which he is widely credited with maintaining through years and years of political influence, what he calls access capital, um, and which is what he built the Carlisle Group around several years ago. The New Yorker did a profile on David Rubenstein's efforts to maintain this tiny loophole that affects about 5,000 people to the tune of about $300,000 each in tax savings called the carried interest loophole that basically lets private equity fund managers mischaracterize their ordinary income as capital gains income and in so doing get the preferential capital gains rate. So just the idea that Joe Manchin, who is actually one of 17 sponsors on the bill to close the carried interest loophole, well, he is sitting next to David Rubenstein lamenting these additional reporting requirements while doing nothing at all. What he should have done is turn to David Rubenstein and said, hey, while we're talking about unfairness, buddy, don't you think it's about time for you to give up your cushy loophole? And I'll just point out that these are the largest private equity companies in the country organizations that are responsible for thousands upon thousands upon tens of hundreds of thousands of Americans losing their jobs when they acquire these companies. These people, to add insult to injury, get a preferential treatment over working people in the tax code. And here is one of United States senators sitting next to the per- one of the perpetuators of that injustice. And rather than confronting him on that, he actually says, you know, oh, whoa, are the banks for these additional reporting requirements? I mean, right. you know, this this has gotten untenable. Yeah, no, he said it's all messed up. So, again, I'm speaking with Morris Pearl and Erica Payne. Morris Pearl is the former managing director of BlackRock and is currently the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high net worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable and inclusive nation. And Erica Payne is the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive. They are the co-authors of a new book just out, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. So, Morris, given that we have a political system that's driven by money and that, in effect, our legislatures have been turned into telemarketers, both Democrats and Republicans spend most of their days dialing for dollars. So, given that reality, is it simply that rich folks and billionaires are easier targets? In other words, you can get a big chunk of money out of them, so you have to make fewer phone calls. Is it that simple? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, our Congress people spend a huge amount of their time dealing with the very wealthy. Um, And yeah, because, you know, as bank robbers used to say, that's where the money is. It's a lot easier to find some loophole that will help some very rich person get even richer than it is to find some policy that will help millions of poor people be a little bit less poor. And so unfortunately, that tends to be where our government policies lead to these loopholes 
that, as Eric was saying, you know, the Caritas Loop helps a few thousand people, but David Rubenstein made tens of millions of dollars from this loophole and is hundreds of millions of dollars wealthier than he would otherwise be without this one crazy loophole. And that's the sort of thing that so many Americans just feel entitled to. And then as their senators and Congress people get to know them and know them very well, they, it's hard, they just don't argue against these things. And that, well, of course, that's the way it is. If, if we tax these people more, they'll have less money. That's, nobody wants less money. And so it's just these preposterous arguments that kind of perpetuate themselves, these myths of, oh, these are the job creators. These are the people that perpetuate charities. These are the people that repair the Washington Monument when it got damaged in an earthquake. These are the people that do all these wonderful things by spending some tiny fraction of 1% of their fortune on some public good while paying half the tax rate or less than half the tax rate that people who work for a living pay. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And at the government loses, what, $600 billion each year because of uh, the wealthy Americans avoiding taxes? Is that is that right, Erica? The IRS commissioner said that it was actually closer to a trillion. Well, I think the people in your in the country get it, right? And your book really is addressing this, and it's an entertaining read. It's not wonky <laughs> at all. It's, it's <laughs> delightful with lots of sort of uh, cartoons and quizzes and stuff. So how do you translate the fact that the vast majority of Americans, 71%, believe the economy is rigged in favor of the rich. How do you, how do you mobilize that into a political movement? Let me, let me begin with Morris. Well, what we do is we're the patriotic millionaires, and we've organized hundreds of wealthy business people and investors around the country to explain to their Congress people and their senators and their representatives that we, the wealthy business people and investors, actually don't want gross inequality. We actually want a country with millions of people who can afford to pay their bills every month and buy all the expensive things that we sell in our businesses that help make us get rich. So that's what we're doing. I mean, there's lots of people who... I mean, basically for almost all Americans, this is pretty obvious what's happening. And we just have to get people who have access to our elected representatives to explain it to them or get the people to elect different representatives if these representatives choose not to understand. Yeah, I mean, just case in point, Ian, I mean, on that point, look, we have the Patriotic Millionaires first came together 11 years ago. And at that moment, there was essentially no one saying tax the rich. And the reason that the group came together is that President Obama in 2010, during the lame duck session of Congress, was in the process of caving to Republican demands to extend the Bush tax cuts. And so here was a Democratic president colluding with Republicans to lessen the tax burden of millionaires and billionaires, which we thought was ridiculous. So that's when the group first came together. But I mean, part of what happened there is the media absolutely exploded because who were these people, these crazy millionaires who wanted to pay higher taxes? And it's like they don't even want to pay higher taxes. It's just they think the system as it is designed is un sustainable. We're at 100-year levels of inequality, and we have a tax code that guarantees, guarantees, Ian, that we will become even more unequal even more quickly over time. 
And unfortunately, the tax corrections or reforms that the Democrats are contemplating aren't even going to come close to solving the problem. And one of the issues is that that tax policy tends to induce some sort of situational narcolepsy. People hear tax policy and they fall asleep. So we wanted to create an easy way for people to really understand how ridiculous the tax code is in some detail. So that's why we wrote the book. But I mean, look, this is this is one of these, the situation is clear. Public polls show that the vast majority of Democrats, independents, and Republicans believe the rich should pay higher taxes. The political leaders refuse to pass those policies because the donor class is preventing them. They are exerting their influence and they are preventing those reforms from happening. The only answer is to replace those lawmakers or to make those lawmakers believe they are going to be replaced if they don't change their position on tax policy. So we've created a website called taxtherich.com where people can go and they can click the button, the problem, and they can look at that list of about 14 Democrats and decide what they're going to do about that group of 14 Democrats, including the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, who refuses to raise taxes on millionaires. I mean, this is very simple. These things poll at like 74, 75, 76 percent. Everybody wants multimillionaires and multinational corporations to pay higher taxes, except the lawmakers whose campaigns are funded by that group of people. Full stop. So let's take a, a brief station break, and we'll be back in a moment continuing the conversation with Morris Pearl and Erica Payne. Because I'm the tax man. Yes, I'm the tax man. That man is rough. Now dig this. Should 5% appear too small? Just be thankful. <laughs> I don't take it all. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, and we're continuing the conversation with Morris Pearl and Erica Payne. Morris Pearl is the former managing director of BlackRock, and he's currently the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high-net-worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable, and inclusive nation. And Erica Payne is the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive. They are the co-authors of a new book just out, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. So let's focus then, Erica, on this, what, almost a century of, in fact, we are, as many analysts suggested, returning to the kind of Gilded Age at the end of the 19th century. And this is the new Gilded Age. And you have the enablers, as you mentioned, these uh, key Democrats, but who refuse to tax the rich. But the poster child at the moment, of course, is is Senator Kirsten Sinema. She's single-handedly blocking the Democrats' efforts to get the Trump tax cuts repealed and to tax the wealthy and to tax corporations. So it's just down to one person. And that seems extraordinary to me that at the end of the day, that's the sort of, is that the backup plan for the establishment? In other words, you've got the Republicans all on side. All you have to do is peel off one or two Democrats and the rich get richer. 
Well, I mean, that, that yes, basically. I mean, if you look at the Medicare drug pricing, there are three House Democrats who blocked the proposal to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. So pharma companies got off pretty cheap on this one. They only had to peel off a couple of them. And I mean, I do want to point out that they have gotten all of the Republicans on their side. I mean, the Republican Party is just an absolute lost cause. They rewrote the entire federal tax code in 2017 on a party line vote. And in 2018, for the first time in American history, billionaires paid a lower effective tax rate than every single other group of people in the country. And so you can chalk up 50 Republicans as just being absolutely nowhere even close to ever being a constructive part of this dialogue. And so we are left with only 50 candidates plus Kamala Harris to pass a convoluted through a convoluted budget reconciliation process, some level of tax reform that will do the tiniest thing towards correcting the injustice. What should happen is we should have a massive national debate about how we want to structure our tax code. We should insist that people who have wealth, that we begin by taxing the wealthiest people in the country in very substantial ways and ways that make them less rich because their money has gotten to be at such a level that it essentially has become raw power and they are using that power to destroy the democracy. So it is entirely appropriate for the federal government to sit in, to to come in and make those people less rich. But we ought to have 100 senators and 435 some odd House members debating publicly exactly how they are going to address the destabilizing level of inequality and the profound injustice in the tax code that is driving that inequality, because as it stands now, Ian, we have created an economic system that guarantees the decline and eventual demise of our society as we know it. It has to be addressed. And every single lawmaker in the country, regardless of political party, should be urged and demanded, their constituents should demand that they address this. The country is dying. And Morris Pearl, do you think that the tax code could be interpreted as the kind of moral DNA of a country? Well, it is. It's our collective decision about lots of things. We have, through our government, through our elected representatives, decided that we prefer income from capital, income from investments, more than income from working. That's a moral and political decision that our country has made for whatever reason. We believe we should make a different decision. So hopefully our government will change. But yes, the tax code is one of the things that reflects the the moral DNA of our society, sure. And I just want to, Ian, these are real dollars, Ian. If two people make $100,000, one by working all year long and one by clicking a button on an E-Trade account for four seconds one day, the working person, the full-time working person pays $9,000 more in federal taxes than the investor. Every working person in America should be in the streets. So you've got to reverse the fact that it's the inheritors and the investors who are winning out in this system as opposed to the workers. And that ought to resonate That's exactly right. with every American, or except for the handful that 
of, of the billionaires whose wealth, by the way, has gone up 40% during the pandemic. And yep. we're talking about billions and billions of extra dollars here for a handful of people who Ron Wyden's Senate committee now has, has floated this idea of a billionaire surtax. But um, I'm sure there's going to be a howl of, and an avalanche of protests from the banking lobby and the wealthy lobby and what's called the wealth protection industry. But just in the last couple of minutes here, let me ask Morris first and then you second, Erica, about what I think is at the core of your new book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. And that is that it's just a demonstrated fact that more working people, middle-class people, working Americans, more money in their pocket helps the economy infinitely more than having allowing billionaires to have an extra few billion. I mean, you can't sail two yachts at the same time. Yeah, I mean, even look at somebody like me who's not a billionaire. If I make an extra $100,000 or a million dollars, it's not going to change my life one way or the other, to be perfectly honest with you. But for most people in America who work for a living, extra money will change their lives. You know, even the people who are complaining in, about in Seattle when the minimum wage was raised, they now found that all of the workers having more money, more people are eating out, restaurants are doing better. Giving more money to people who will spend it is a lot more important to the businesses and investors in America than actually giving more money to the rich people just to help them get richer. Definitely. And Erica? I mean, listen, I think even when we frame this around taxing wealthy people, I think all I want right now is for Elon Musk to pay the same tax rate that I pay. Okay, let's just start there. Let's just start by making billionaires pay the same tax rate that working people pay. If we could get that done. But that is an impossibility in this Congress. I mean, these Democrats are acting like they're changing the world when they're rearranging the deck on the, the deck chairs on the Titanic. So, Morris, what can be done, though, to support Ron Wyden and the Democrats? Because, as I mentioned, they're going to up against the richest and most powerful people in the country, you know, Bezos and Elon Musk and the Koch brothers, etc. Well, I mean, Ian, what are they going to do to him? You know, it's not like Elon Musk is going to send somebody to physically hurt Ron Wyden or the rest of these lawmakers. I mean, literally all they have to do is stand in a lovely room and raise their hand one way or another on the vote. I mean, the downside, do they really think they're going to lose their office by taxing billionaires? I mean, give me a break. There is no risk to these politicians. The risk to their to their soul, if they don't make these changes, is profound. The risk to them in their daily life is non-existent. Well, Marissa, what would you do if you were in a room with Kirsten Cinema, who's single-handedly holding up the possibility of paying for these, this $3.5 trillion now has been reduced down to less than $2 trillion simply because she won't allow the tax revenues necessary to pay for it. And she doesn't want to repeal the Trump tax cuts or tax the wealthy or tax corporations. So what kind of argument? I'm, I know she's kind of something of a Marie Antoinette character who's all about vanity and even more egotistical in a way than Trump himself, which is really saying something. But 
if you were in a room with her, what argument would you make just in closing here? Well, I'm, I'm planning to be in a room with some of the Democratic senators this weekend at their, at their retreat for major donors, of course. Mm. Uh, but what I would try to do is first I would try to understand what her actually logical position is, because there must be something going on in her brain that I don't understand. And once I figure that out, try to explain to her how even the wealthy people in her state and her donors and everyone else will benefit from these more progressive policies that help stabilize our country, that help fight against the forces that are making so many of our people just turn to despair and death and opioids and everything else and help her understand why more progressive policies are going to be helpful to everyone, including her. And Erica, what would you say? I would tell her that working people in Arizona right now are paying $300 a month to send their kid to public kindergarten while Elon Musk pays a lower tax rate than the working people in her state. And if she does not see the connection between those two things, then she's never, then the only thing left is to kick her out of office. I mean, this is a long fight. Let's say the the wealthy people and billionaires have been chipping away at their obligation to this country for decades. We are not going to fix this all overnight, but by golly, over the next 10 years, we are going to fix it. And it's going to require getting rid of politicians like Kirsten Sinema and Richie Neal, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. These people are not serving their constituents' interests, and they're not serving the interests of this country. Well, Morris Pearl and Erica Payne, I thank you both for joining us here today. Thank you. Great thank to you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Morris Pearl as a former managing director of BlackRock and currently the chair of the Patriotic Millionaires, a group of 200 high net worth Americans who are committed to building a more prosperous, stable and inclusive nation. And Erica Payne is the founder and president of the Patriotic Millionaires and the author of The Practical Progressive. They are the co-authors of the new book, Just Out, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave And this land here of the free world
One more light goes on.